0: Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 12. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, you shall rise up the foundations of many generations, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets. This is the
1: this word of the Lord. Hello again. Uh, third week um, with you. Uh, for most of you recognize me, I think, because I've been in a, at Emmanuel for a long time. But uh, just in case you don't know me, I'm Charlie Drew. I um, came here in 1999 and started Emmanuel, and then I retired three years ago. Uh, and uh, Scott's on vacation, and he's asked me to preach for him, and I'm really happy to do it. We've been talking together about suffering how to understand it, how to deal with it. And, uh, and I want to continue in that today. There is a, a telling moment during Jesus's ministry among us. He miraculously feeds 5,000 people, but not before he looks at his anxious disciples who are urging him to send the mob away and says to them, you give them something to eat. He expects them to act to give what they have to give, and then he makes something wonderful and miraculous come of it. That's a very telling story. We cry, Why, God, did you let George Floyd die? We cry, God, why have you allowed so many to perish from the COVID 19 infection? We cry, Perhaps, Lord, why? In our time, have you permitted 70.8 million people to be forcibly displaced, among them nearly 26 million refugees, over half of whom are under the age of 18? Why, Lord, have you permitted more than 4 million women and girls to fall victim to sex trafficking globally? And why, Lord, is Southern Africa on track to lose more than 30% of its main crop, maize, by 2030, due to climate change. Why, Lord? And God responds very interestingly, at least in part, by saying this. Here's my response. What have you done to make the world a place where such cruelties and hardship are less likely to occur? These things, remember, dear ones, have happened on your watch in the world that I gave you To take care of. Now, we spoke in passing last week of that rejoinder from the Lord. And today I want to dive much more deeply into that by looking with you at this marvelous passage, this convicting and troubling passage in Isaiah 58, where we discover something about what God hates, something about what God loves. And all of that forces us to ask, what on earth are we going to do about our own hypocrisy in the light of those things? So those are the three basic out parts of the outline. First of all, what does God hate? Well, God, we're told, hates heartless faith. In other words, he hates religious worship without social concern. He starts in verse one with a cry. He says, a cry that he urges upon us. He says, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. What's he saying? He's saying to all of us, be my voice. Cry out with anger, lament, horror, and grief over what you are doing to yourselves. What you are doing to me and my reputation, what you are doing to one another, and what you are doing to your world. Now, why is the Lord so particularly upset, so grief stricken and angry? I think both anger, fury, and grief are in the tone of this uh, of this passage. And why is he that way? Um, it's not because they, we, aren't praying. Verse two. They ask me for righteous judgments. Uh, Israel is in serious trouble from her enemies and is begging God to intervene. We perhaps are praying earnestly for America, for God to be good. And God is so upset not because they, we, aren't eagerly studying our Bibles. Also, verse 2, they delight to know my ways. God is so upset not because we aren't praying and studying our Bibles enough. Also, verse two, they seek me daily, all the time, not just once a week, not just on Sundays, but they have devotions day after day after day after day. They're coming to me that way. And God is upset not because we aren't enthusiastic worshipers. Verse two, again, they delight to draw near to God. He's upset not even that we haven't fasted. Um, They talk about fasting. Fasting. And they are serious fasters, bowing their heads, spreading out sackcloth and ashes over and under them all, described in verse 5. Now, before we see precisely what it is that God's so angry about, we need to grapple with a very scary thought. And here's the scary thought that emerges from what I just said to you. We can, at one and the same time, be seriously religious people and infuriating to God. (laughs) We can be both of those things at the same time. We can express our faith vigorously while at the same time breaking God's heart and stirring up his anger. We can be in serious jeopardy, walking clueless over everlasting burnings, not knowing, not even aware that they might break out at any moment. I am sure that many in the temple precincts had no idea what Jesus was so upset about when he started throwing the furniture around. But he was seriously upset, and he was revealing the heart of God. who was seriously upset about their form of religion. So what is it more specifically that's wrong? What's wrong is that we can be the sort of people who worship God without getting him at all. We go through motions, but we don't really understand what he's like. We don't get him. Um, God is all about love, holy love, not sentimental love, holy love. But these people, and perhaps you and I, are all about themselves. Verse three, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. Fasting is about them. It's about their agenda. It's about their deliverance. It's about their self-assertion. It's not about God's agenda, and it's not about their neighbors. Our lovelessness can show up in fighting, verse 4. Behold, take note, you fast only to quarrel. <laughs> it, can be, it can show up in injustice. Also, verse 3, behold, take note, in the day of your fast, you oppress all your workers. And it can show up in finger wagging. Verse 9 speaks of pointing the finger. So, for example, we find ourselves shouting on the internet, by protecting that statue, you prove that you're nothing but a racist. And then we respond, by, making, by removing that statue, you prove that you're nothing but a socialist and that's an evil word, and and an anti-American hater of history. And so we just wag the finger at each other, talking again and again about what's wrong and what's so hateful about the other guy. Well, God is calling us out, raising his voice like a trumpet. The language in verse one is very, very strong. Don't approach me. However fervently, if you don't hate what I hate, and if you do not love what I love, I find this hard and troubling. I'm not yelling at you, I'm talking to myself. God says, Don't insult and grieve me by, by, with loveless lives. Don't tell me that you love and need me when you are abusing people and when you are accusing people. Don't do it. Now, let me give you a historical example of this. Think about the churches. Complicity in American Slavery, this thing is on our minds a good bit, and I thought I would land on it for just a moment. God hated, with all his might, Thomas Affleck's Plantation Record and Account book, which ran into eight editions circulated throughout the American South, especially prior to the American Civil War. That book meticulously and heartlessly quantified and assessed the commercial value of human beings appreciating and depreciating them according to their sex, according to their age, according to their strength, and according to their temperament. Matthew Desmond writes of the practices that Affleck's book sanctioned. He writes this, Overseers had hands line pick in rows sometimes longer than five football fields, allowing overseers to spot anyone who was lagging behind and then deal with them. Faster workers were placed at the head of the line, which encouraged those who followed to match the captain's pace. One enslaver established a, quote, sucklers gang for nursing mothers. Mothers who had just had their babies still had to work the fields. They created sucklers gangs, as well as a, quote, measles gang, which at once quarantined those struck by the virus and at the same time ensured that they did their part. In other words, they still had to work, though they were sick did their part to contribute to the productivity machine. Adhered to by planters as a kind of Bible of exploitation, Affleck's book increased the productivity of the average slave by 400% over 60 years between 1801 and 1861. And in 1863, slaves and the cotton they picked in one year were worth in 2020 dollars 285 billion dollars over a quarter of a trillion and god hated it if we're to believe isaiah 58 he hated the whole system just as he hated the wealth producing synergy between southern planters and the northern textile industry whose owners happily made enormous amounts of money off the enslaved people who supplied the cotton. And if we are to believe Isaiah 58, God was grief-stricken and furious at the church-going society, both in the North and in the South, that enjoyed the benefits of this synergy while ignoring the abuse of human beings upon which it was based. So that's kind of challenging. I've been been doing some historical work because of the latest thing, and I, I encourage you all to do it. We have a very, very troubling past that we need to come to grips with and face up to. Um, It's easy, perhaps, to sit in judgment of that time, to wag our fingers, as the Lord says we mustn't, (laughs) to wag our our fingers at those, quote, good Christian southern planters and northern industrialists industrialists whose behavior broke the heart and raised the fury of God. Or to sit in judgment of those politicians in both the North and the South who within a generation of the emancipation of African-Americans advanced and permitted the Jim Crow society that all but reinstituted slavery, taking back the land, the voting rights, and the dignity that had rightly been given former slaves at war's end. But before we do that, before we sort of sit back from our historical perspective and think about how rotten and evil they were. We should examine ourselves and ask friends to help us examine ourselves. Do we consistently treat people the way God wants us to treat people? Consistently. Do we hate to see people dehumanized? Wherever it happens and whoever they are, even people, for example, whose political choices we abhor and we're tempted to turn into the incarnation of the politics that we hate. Or Whose lifestyles we find incomprehensible or even people who have personally wounded us or anonymous people on the internet? Do we hate to see people exploited? Do we hate to see people hurt by whatever means? Whether it's by greedy bosses or market forces. Oh, that word is such a convenient word The invisible hand when well, we just let the invisible hand do its thing Well, or by climate change. Do we do we hate to see people hurt? By any of those things, do we find intolerable workplaces where efficiency dwarfs every other value? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves and think very hard about. We don't earn God's love by pushing against the forces that exploit or oppress people. We can't earn God's love. But we do prove that we don't know him very well when we don't care. And when you don't push against depression. Now, Isaiah puts this whole matter positively. We've just been talking about what God hates. But then God trumpets forth what he loves. (laughs) And God loves religion that loves. (laughs) God loves faith that cares. And it liberates us. And that liberates others. Verses 6 and 7. He's just talked about their fasting. And then he says, think about it, is not this the fast that I choose? To lose, loose the bonds of wickedness, wherever they are, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God absolutely loves it. When we break yokes, (laughs) however small they may be, however negligible they may appear to us, or however great they may be. God loved it. He loved it. When Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing a woman who had been crippled for 18 years and answered his critics with these words, Why should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, not a beast, but a person, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. God loved that, that healing and that exchange. God loved it. Another historical example, when William Wilberforce stood before Parliament in 1787, interestingly, the same year that our country ratified the Constitution that permitted and perpetuated slavery in the new nation. William Wilberforce stood before before Parliament in 1787 and humbly began his 46-year-long assault on slavery. And this is what he said. He said, When I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am to bring before the House, a subject in which the interests not of this country nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world, and of posterity are involved, it's impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But I march forward with a firmer step and the full assurance that my cause will bear me out. I mean, and here is humility here at this point. He's not nailing people for all their complicity, because he goes on to say, I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself, in common indeed with the whole Parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority, we are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty and not to exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame on others. God loved that speech and he loved the 46-year effort uh, which led to the abolition of not just the slave trade but to slavery itself. God loves it coming home to the present when we work to make our workplaces safe, both physically and emotionally, places where people can thrive, whoever they are. God loves it when we nurture and protect the lives of all children, children before they're born and children after they're born. God loves it when we take serious time to pray for mercy and justice in our often oppressive world, when we wrestle with him over our leaders, that they will love and promote mercy and justice, when we roll up our sleeves and give hours to beseeching him to work on the leadership of our country. God loves it when we allow nationally reflective times, like the present one, to raise questions about our complicity in racist behavior and racist institution. God loves it, in short, Whenever we seek to lift a yoke, however large and however small, off somebody else's shoulders, his heart is set on breaking every yoke, he says in verse six. Not just some of them, which means that there is always something lovely for you and me to do. Something that he loves, because there's always a yoke out there. (laughs) It could just be in our family, but he loves it when we do that. Now, all of what I've been saying, I hope, is troubling you. It ought to. It certainly has troubled me. And here's here's one way of putting the trouble. How do we deal with our hypocrisy? We're carrying along on our backs a yoke, and it's the yoke of hypocrisy where we say religious things about God and then don't do what he does. We aren't like him, even though we claim to worship him. How do we deal with the yoke of our failure consistently to heed God's cry, to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates? How do we deal with the yoke of our hypocrisy? Well, do we simply resolve to stop worship and Bible study and prayer until we uh, get our mercy and justice act together? so that we don't risk being hypocrites? Is that what we do? Do we just work harder at lifting yokes wherever we find them? Well, perhaps we should, in some form, do those two things. But let me tell you this. If we try with this command, as with any other command that the Lord has given us in Scripture, if we try, we will soon discover that the task is beyond us. It is beyond both our strength And it is beyond our inclination, even, and determination. We will find ourselves, like the disciples, facing 5,000 hungry people with nothing but a few loaves and fish to feed them and simply wanting them to go away. (laughs) These problems are enormous, and if we take them seriously, we'll find ourselves wanting them just to go away. We don't want to have to deal with them. We need help. We really need help from the outside. And we begin to see where the help comes from when we remember that Jesus himself was speaking in the prophets, as first Peter says, revealing his coming glory and suffering. Jesus is speaking here in Isaiah 58. We can hear his voice and we can also witness his life. In Isaiah 58 think of Jesus's life Isaiah 58 described doesn't describe us very well, but it describes him Gloriously with remarkable vividness. I mean think about it. Jesus broke every yoke pouring himself out for the hungry and Satisfying the desire of the afflicted verse 6 verse 10 Jesus fed in satisfied satisfied multitudes Jesus Liberated the garrison demoniac so dramatically that the village villagers found him quote clothed and in his right mind sitting at jesus' feet. Jesus returned the dead to grieving friends and relatives, including a twelve year old girl. Jesus restored the excluded to community, like a woman like the woman with the flow of blood whom he publicly called. Daughter, by the very same name that was given to Jairus's daughter, whom he healed almost at the same time, and thereby publicly pronounced her clean and receivable back into community. And Jesus not only lifted every yoke, he refused to wag the finger. Verse 9. Jesus forgave and set at liberty the woman who was about to be stoned for adultery, didn't he? Jesus shattered the constraints of social convention, receiving, touching, and enjoying anybody who came to him lepers, prostitutes, thieves, tax collectors, Gentiles, the poor. He uh, prayed for God to forgive his executioners. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He asked for God to remove the yoke of their guilt from off their shoulders. To the dying thief who had begun the day cursing Jesus but asked now to be remembered, Jesus said some of the most beautiful words anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> he said to this guy, Truly, I tell you, this day we will be together in paradise. We look at Jesus and our hopes begin to rise, maybe just a little bit, as we find a fellow traveler, a brother, who shows forth God's heart in a way we never could. Perhaps somehow there's some hope for us. But then, then, think about Jesus' death and scratch your heads. None of the promised blessing and kindness of Isaiah 58 came his way, though he uniquely deserved all of it. Verse 8, Then, if you love the way I do, God said to Israel, Shall your light break out like the dawn? Well, there was no light on Good Friday, only darkness. Only physical darkness and far worse, the outer darkness of exclusion from God's presence that fell to Jesus. In verse 8, God says, If you do this, if you live this way, then your healing will quickly appear. There was no quick healing for Jesus On his last day, only slow, excruciating death. Also, verse 8, then if you love this way, if you behave this way, if you choose my fast, then your righteousness, meaning God, your righteousness, will go before you. Think of the pillar of fire in the wilderness. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Think of the Lord guarding Israel's flanks as the army of Pharaoh pressed her into the Red Sea. Well, then think about Jesus. He was not safe. None of that protection happened to him. He was exposed, beaten, mocked, and tortured to death. The one who had clothed the demoniac hung without clothes before a mocking crowd, and God did nothing about it. And then verse 9, then you will call, and the Lord will answer. The Lord didn't answer. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no answer. We hear Jesus' anguish in verse 3, why, Father, have I humbled myself? Not just this once. But my lifetime, and you take no knowledge, why, Father, must you answer with stony silence my utterly lovely life, a life in which I've lifted every yoke that came before me? Why, Father, the outer darkness for me? And, and we, have to, we have to answer that question. We have to wrestle with it. This is what made the death of Jesus so shocking, unbelievable, so perturbing, so disturbing to the apostles, until Jesus explained it, until they finally began to see what it was all about. Jesus was our sin bearer. Taking the curses, all of them, so that we could receive the promises, all of them. God's son bore the silence and the fury of Isaiah 58 so that we who deserve them for our neglect and cruelty and hypocrisy could escape them. Jesus, you see, wanted to be able to say verses 9 and 10 over us with great joy. And he knew that he could not do this or he could do this only by offering his lovely life in place of ours and by bearing the consequences of our loveliness, in, uh, of our lovelessness in that exchange. Listen to his voice I'm putting his voice here into verses 9 and 10. I'm adding a few words so you can hear it. Jesus says, Then, dear friends, beloved ones, because of what I have done in your place, you shall call, and the Lord will answer you, despite your hypocrisy. For I have taken away the yoke from your midst, the yoke of your sin." The pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, I have poured out myself for the hungry, including you, spiritually hungry, and satisfied the desire of the afflicted, including yours. And so shall your light, therefore, because of what I've done, your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be as noonday. Now, you and I are not yet there. We do not yet know the fullness of the blessing because we live in a still broken world and we contribute to it. Yes. We're not yet what we will one day be. We are not yet what we must be. We do not yet love our neighbor as God has loved us. But, but, if we're in Christ, if we belong to Jesus Christ by faith, we are on our way. In him we are fully forgiveness forgiven of all of our sins, even the sins we don't remember. But we're not only forgiven, no, we are also alive. By his spirit in Christ, he is making our bones strong, verse 11. He is making us, verse 11, like, water, like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, so that friends and enemies may drink from the kindness that we extend to them by the power of Christ within us. We are the possessors of rivers of living water that well up to eternal life, as Jesus promised the woman at the well. If you're in Christ, you're alive. You're alive with Christ. You're alive with this new life. Representative John Lewis, who died this week, was such a garden. A founder in the civil rights movement who endured much violence and cruelty for his determination to lift the yoke of racism and was also a follower of Jesus, wrote this in his memoir. Quote, there is something in the very essence of the anguish of suffering for the liberation of others that is liberating. And cleansing and Redemptive he could say that because Christ was in him and we can too So I have a little bit of homework for you, here's your takeaway take one thing take one or rather lift one new yoke off somebody's back this week just one It doesn't have to be a grand public action, though it might be. Perhaps it's just a kind and just initiative at work or taking up a spouse's burden that you haven't taken up before or taking up a parent's burden that you haven't taken up before. And do the lifting, not by your own strength, not as an effort to earn something, but do it by faith, not to earn uh, God's love and forgiveness. You already have them. If you belong to Jesus and not because you feel the inclination or strength to you might not. It is Christ's life in you, not your life in you (laughs) that enables you to be the sort of person that Christ wants you to be. Do it and you do it. You'll meet God as you do. And I tell you that, uh, I don't know exactly what the meeting will be like. I can't tell you exactly how it'll feel, but I know you'll meet him in the doing because he promises you will. He, in this very passage, he promises it, and he keeps his word. Think of Jesus himself, the great lifter of every yoke, including the yoke of guilt. He says, come to me, John uh, Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That is, those of you who carry yokes. <laughs> come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, not somebody else's. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and I will give you rest for your souls. What a lovely thing. What a wonderful yoke lifting friend and savior we have in God. God who came to us in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our God, um, we come under the weight of your law. And we know that your law says we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And nothing less than that is what we must do and we must be. And yet you are the God who has also come to bear the punishment for our failure to do that so that we could be forgiven and begin to do it. By the power of your spirit. So thank you. Lord, help us to be liberators in small ways, large ways. Help us to love what you love. Help us to hate what you hate. Do this by the power of Christ and by the power of the cross. And we pray in his name. Amen.